0: That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from one mile away. So I know what happens when the so-called experts get it wrong. Tons of nuke news this week, including a stunning federal court decision in our favor regarding San Onofre. Friends of the Earth's nuclear campaigner, Kendra Ulrich, will explain the impact and implications shortly. And today's featured interview is with documentary filmmaker Rudolf Herzog, author of the new book, A Short History of Nuclear Folly mad scientists, dithering Nazis, lost nukes, and catastrophic cover-ups. Sounds like the NRC Duck Report. That interview will be coming up midway through the program. Today is Tuesday, May 14, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. In a story that we have been covering, three activists, including an 83-year-old nun who broke into a U.S. nuclear weapons facility in Tennessee, were convicted on Wednesday, May 8th, of interfering with national security. In what the New York Times labeled the biggest security breach in the history of the atomic complex, the trio broke into the Y-12 nuclear security complex on July 28, 2012, and defaced a uranium processing plant. The three activists are Sister Megan Rice, 57-year-old Greg Bortier-Obed, and Michael Wally, 64. Once these three refused to plead guilty to trespassing, which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years' imprisonment, the prosecution introduced the charge of sabotage, which carries a maximum prison term of 20 years. According to the Associated Press, the three activists have no remorse for their actions and were pleased to have reached one of the most secure areas of the facility. They spent two hours inside Y-12, during which time, and this is how they defaced this top security facility, During the time they spent inside Y-12, they hung banners, cut through security fences, strung crime scene tape, and sprayed baby bottles full of human blood on the exterior portion of the facility, that blood having been donated to them in his will by a member of their organization who died and wanted his blood to stand for something. Bortier-Obed said, The baby bottles represent the blood of children spilled by these weapons. During cross examination, Sister Rice stated that she wished she had not waited so long to stage a protest within the plant. She said, My regret was I waited 70 years. It is manufacturing which can only cause death. Prosecutors argued that the breach of security was serious. Meanwhile, federal officials maintained that there was never any danger of the three activists reaching materials that could be detonated or used to construct an improvised bomb. So, which was it, guys? Was it serious, or was there never any danger? Or is the real danger just that you got embarrassed at your lack of security? You should actually be paying these people for having pointed out your security lapses in such a benign way. And if you don't like it, well, as the saying goes, just pull up your big boy panties and suck it up. We will keep you informed of future developments for these three brave activists. Big news that yesterday, May 13, an independent nuclear regulatory panel called for a full public hearing on the proposed restart of one of the two damaged San Onofre nuclear reactors, a move that could delay Southern California Edison's effort to operate the plant this summer. To get the details from the source, Nuclear Hot Seat talked to Friends of the Earth's nuclear campaigner, Kendra Ulrich, who was last week's interview, for a readout of just what this news means
1: the atomic safety and licensing board that's an administrative uh, judicial panel within the nrc uh, was asked by the nrc commissioners to evaluate whether or not the cal process the confirmatory action letter that the nrc uh, issued last march that edison has to fulfill prior to restarting either reactor And Edison's response to that does in fact constitute what's called a de facto license amendment, meaning granting restart would allow them to operate outside of the scope of the license. Yesterday's opinion that was handed down by the ASLB was actually a stunning victory, a sweeping victory for not just Friends of the Earth who filed the contention, but for all of the people of Southern California. What the ASLB essentially said was that every contention that Friends of the Earth brought to them was upheld meaning that the restart plan would in fact be outside of the scope of the license that Edison needed to amend the license to address numerous areas, not just this footnote license amendment that they've proposed already, but numerous areas where they don't comply with the terms of their license. Significantly also the vibration analysis and that will take a very long time for them to complete, um, which isn't in their updated final safety analysis report and that's a part of the license. They also said very, very clearly that the replacement steam generators were not like for like, that these were different from the original steam generators, and that the replacement steam generator project should have gone through the license amendment previously, that they did not get, that they made significant design changes that they did not get a license amendment for. So this is really a a vindication of everything that the public has been saying, that Friends of the Earth has been saying. But more than that, it requires that they go through this thorough vetting before they are allowed to restart this incredibly damaged reactor. You know, it's very, very important that the people of Southern California understand that, you know, Edison's proposal for restarting these reactors, either one of them, but, you know, specifically Unit 2 right now, is based directly upon experimental research data. There's no basis in
2: reality for this.
1: Right, exactly. Exactly there's no empirical data, there's no basis for them to be able to point to and say, this is why our theory is correct, because it's all experimental. And so what the the judges said was that this is an experiment, that these are not like for like, and that Edison must update their license and go through that thorough vetting before either reactor is allowed to restart. Now, I understand that even
2: though we got this ruling yesterday from the ASLB, the need for SCE to go through this process is not guaranteed because there's still some slip-ups that could happen procedurally or politically that would
1: take this step off the table. Can you go into that a little bit? A couple different things. The the commissioners could come back and overturn the ruling of the ASLB.
2: In other words, just like FIAT,
1: they could say, no, we don't want to do it, sorry, no. Exactly. That would be shocking. And absolutely outrageous because the commissioners themselves voted unanimously to have the ASLB evaluate this question. So, back in November, when they were considering the petition that we filed last June, the commissioners made a unanimous vote to defer this question to the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board to have judges evaluate the evidence and determine whether or not the Cal process, not just the four corners of the letter they were issued, but the entire process, the response, was in fact a de facto license amendment process. And the ASLB came back and agreed with our contentions that, yes, granting restart under these conditions with these incredibly damaged steam generators that are experiencing a globally unique problem would be outside of the scope of the current operating license and Edison needs to address that. So, you know, for the commission to actually overturn it, they would have to go back on what they said previously, which is that, you know, this needs to be considered by judges who have evaluated all of the relevant evidence. In other I words, they that's...
2: fobbed it off on the ASLB, but they were not saved from having to move forward on this very, what's going to be a very potentially controversial Decision should they follow through as they need to and say no to a restart?
1: Yes, this goes far beyond the, the current license amendment they've applied for, that Edison has applied for. This goes to the entire Cal process, which again has multiple areas where they don't comply with the terms of the license. One of the things that was really shocking to me yesterday was, you know, Edison's PR person, this Scott Burnell said that, you know, they could apply a no-significant-hazard determination to the restart plan. They are so
2: convoluted in their thinking.
1: Well, to me, it, it speaks to them reacting to the fact because, you know, the ASLB didn't just rule against Edison. The ASLB ruled against the NRC staff and their Office of the General Counsel, who were on side with Edison. So, the ASLB rejected the NRC staff's position. and. Edison's position and upheld the contentions of Friends of the Earth. To me, Scott's response to this was just very reactionary, but very much trying to figure out a way where they can move forward because they have been very much indicating that they are trying to meet Edison, you know, time frame for restart, which is restart this summer. And this ruling by the ASLB, now, even if the commission considers this, will take months. So the likelihood of them being able to get restart this summer is almost completely off the table. Such good news for our side. So,
2: Kendra, first of all, thank you so much to you and Friends of the Earth and Damon Moglin, everyone who has worked on this because you've been doing yeoman's duty, and obviously we just saw the results of it, or at least one piece of the result. Where do we go from here, and how can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat support you?
1: Well, right now, again, same as where we were at before, because this is going to be a long process where we're going to be, you know, having legal filings and replies. I mean, I I fully expect that the NRC staff and Edison will appeal this decision to the commission. But, you know, that process is going to take months, again. So, you know, they're not going to be able to rubber stamp restart unless they decide that they can have a very perfunctory license amendment And a no significant hazard consideration, again, which would be absolutely absurd considering all of the issues that the judges determined where they're out of compliance with the terms of their license. But right now, the most critical thing that we need folks to do is still get comments in on the current license amendment that they're going through. That the 70% power operation, that's still a very relevant issue. And the legal filings on this will be long and protracted, but what we need is public comment expressing outrage about this footnote, trying to uh, sideline all of these critical safety concerns. Thursday is the day that the public comment period closes. That's May 16th. That's right. May 16th public comment closes. We need as many people as possible getting public comments into the NRC, filing their comments on that Federal Register notice as soon as possible. So if you go to the Federal Register website, you look up San Onofre. It's now the second thing that comes up when you search for San Onofre on the Federal Register website. You click on that and you can submit your public comment right there. Alternatively, you can also go to our website, which is nukefree.foe.org. And there is an action alert there as well where you can submit your public comments to the Friends of the Earth website. And I will also provide a link on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash
2: blog. Kendra, I know you're very busy today in the wake of this wonderful response that we have gotten, and I will let you go for now. But, again, thank you so much for all that you do, all you continue to do, and let's take those suckers down.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Libby. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, and we are absolutely delighted. This is a, a, a real victory for the people of Southern California.
2: Yeah, it's great to win one for a
0: change.
1: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Kendra Ulrich of Friends of the Earth. More news from Southern California regarding San Onofre. The California Public Utilities Commission is conducting formal evidentiary hearings this week, May 13-17, through 17, in a public meeting that they are holding as privately as they possibly can. A number of activist groups from San Diego and Orange Counties joined forces as the Coalition to Decommission San Onofre. According to Ray Lutz, an engineer and member of the coalition, we must continue to apply pressure so that the CPUC will see the insanity of trying to restart these troubled reactors. The Coalition to Decommission San Onofre, CDSO, submitted extensive rebuttal testimony with significant issues that would corner the utility into having to admit that the plant is a financial loser, but that testimony was stricken by the Administrative Law Judge Melanie Darling as being untimely. I wonder what the right time might be for that. The group will still be on hand to cross-examine witnesses from Southern California Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric, experts, and other witnesses. Now, normally, since such meetings are open to the public, anyone can video record and view the hearings on the Internet. Many meetings are webcast, so anyone with a computer can participate no matter how far away they are. However, instead of providing real-time webcast to demonstrate that the hearings are open and transparent, the judges have declined to provide a webcast or videotape the meeting and may even kick out anyone who threatens to use a recorder in the room. This includes videographers from Women's Energy Matters and the Ecological Options Network, who both issued a courtesy notice to the CPUC regarding their intention to videotape. Hey guys, if you've got nothing to hide, what are you hiding? More on Palisades Nuclear Power Plant on Lake Michigan, in Michigan, which you should pardon the expression, is really heating up. Authorities say they found the crack that led to, listen to the language, slightly, that's their word, not mine, slightly radioactive water spilling from the Palisades Nuclear Power Plant into Lake Michigan. Slightly radioactive. Is that, like, a little bit pregnant? The problem was a half-inch crack in the welding around one of nine nozzles in the tank, authorities said on Monday. Three of those have been replaced, and every weld and every nozzle is now being checked. About time, guys. The entire bottom of the tank is also being checked. That leaky tank sits right above the plant's main control room, where drips into the control room were controlled by a bucket. Palisade says they may look at replacing the tank that is cracked. As opposed to what, guys? Super glue and spackle? Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste specialist with Beyond Nuclear, said... There was a hot particle detected that had a pretty high radiation dose rate that was found in the tank. So there's significant radioactive contamination in the tank. Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan is demanding accountability and a permanent fix to the leaking tank at the Palisades plant. He says he is outraged by the announced leak that escaped into the Great Lakes over the weekend. Quote, this situation is not acceptable and demands full accountability. End quote. It's worth noting that Congressman Upton is also chair of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, meaning he does have some serious clout. We'll keep you posted. More news out of Hanford in southeastern Washington. And it's that the Hanford nuclear cleanup may be too dangerous. That's what they're saying, according to Scientific American. The question being, too dangerous for what? To clean it up? Here's the deal. The waste treatment and immobilization plant in Hanford has hit a major snag in the form of potential chain reactions, hydrogen explosions, and leaks from metal corrosion. Mm -mm -mm. The waste feed through the system will be in a mixture of fluids and solids of many different shapes, sizes, and densities. If the solids stop moving, there's a chance that enough plutonium could congregate to trigger a nuclear chain reaction or criticality meaning a self-sustaining cascade of atomic fission that releases massive amounts of energy. Whee! The Defense Nuclear Safety Board, which advises the White House, has called these problems, quote-unquote, a showstopper. No, guys. A showstopper is a moment in a Broadway show where a kick-ass performer goes down in one to Belt out a song that stops the show cold with applause. It has nothing to do with a leaking nuclear storage facility. That is Armageddon. And you happen to be on the wrong side. In St. Louis, an underground landfill fire near 8,700 tons of buried nuclear waste raises serious health and safety concerns. At a March 15 press conference, Peter Anderson, an economist who has studied landfills for over 20 years, raised the worst-case scenario of a dirty bomb, meaning a non-detonated mass release of floating radioactive particles in Metro St. Louis. He said, Now, to be clear, a dirty bomb is not nuclear fission. It's not an atomic bomb. It's not a weapon of mass destruction. But the dispersal of that radioactive material in air that could reach, depending on weather conditions, as far as 10 miles from the site, side note, could be a lot farther than that. But he says 10 miles from the site could make it impossible to have economic activity continue. In other words, St. Louis, you'll be dead. Are you listening? About 1,200 feet south of the radioactive EPA site, The fire at Bridgeton Landfill spreads out like hot barbecue coals. No one knows for sure what happens when an underground inferno meets a pool of atomic waste, but residents aren't eager to find out. One asked, Am I going to end up with cancer 20 years down the road? Nuclear Hot Seat requests that in 20 years you contact us and let us know the status of your health. And when you do so, you will be talking to the world's oldest podcaster. So what's the opposite of a nuclear renaissance? It's the NRC duck report. Yes, where the NRC is concerned, it's always important to duck. Here's a great one. Nuclear Regulatory Commissioner William Ostendorf has invested tens of thousands of dollars in Honeywell International, Inc., an NRC licensee. Can you say conflict of interest? He has done so since as early as 2009, according to financial disclosure records reviewed by the Huffington Post, which is the source of this story. Honeywell operates a controversial uranium enrichment facility in Illinois and has come before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission several times for a variety of issues at the site since Ostendorf became commissioner. Can you spell recuse yourself? When notified of Ostendorf's investment, Stephen Lech, president of United Steelworkers Local 7669, which represents workers at Honeywell's plant in Illinois, responded, I'm speechless. He then went on to say, Even if he did sell his stock before the decision to approve the current seismic work, his investment in the company prior to that is inappropriate. He was on the commission prior to and during our lockout in 2010 and 2011, when we were pleading with the agency to prevent the company from operating our facility with unsafe and untrained scab labor. During that same period, the scabs in the plant had a release of deadly hydrofluoric acid, and the NRC took no enforcement action, instead referring the incident to OSHA. We will have a link to that story because it's much more elaborate and much more upsetting than we have time for today. More in the NRC Duck Report. Grand Gulf Nuclear Power Plant in Mississippi had a transformer on fire for more than 90 minutes this week. There were scrams, meaning emergency shutdowns. I guess it's short for scramble, although it might be for scram! Get out of here! But there were scrams at Turkey Point in Florida, North Anna in Virginia, and Calvert Cliffs in Maryland. And a supervisor was drunk on duty at Limerick Nuclear Power Plant. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. The NRC is going to allow Indian Point to operate without a license. Can't you even give it a ticket? Apparently not. According to CBS New York and AP, Indian Point 2's 40-year license expires on September 28. NRC Regional Administrator Bill Dean said that's at least a year before any decision will be made on whether to extend it for another 20 years. The reactor can keep operating... Because Entergy Nuclear, its owner, filed for renewal more than five years before the expiration date. NRC, couldn't you see this one coming? They filed more than five years ahead of time. This has been in the queue. It's been happening. But you're not going to get around to it until a year after the license expires? You're flirting with nunnuts here. You really are. According to the NRC, Indian Point will have the only nuclear reactor in the country operating without a license. Doesn't that just make you feel all warm and gushy inside? It's also a lousy precedent. And this story of citizens standing up to the NRC and saying, Guys, do your job! On May 6th, the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League, or BREADL along with local activists and citizen groups, filed a legal petition against the Sequoia Nuclear Power Plant in Tennessee with the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Breedle and the others called upon the agency to deny a license extension for the aging nuclear plant, listing eight specific safety and environmental reasons for denial. A major finding shows that during the last 14 years, incident reports average 7.14 problems per year. That's more than one every two months. But for the last six years, the trend indicates increasing numbers of safety-related incidents, both in frequency and severity. According to Lou Zeller, who is executive director of Breedle, as age problems mount and we apply lessons learned from Fukushima, it's prudent to decommission Sequoia as soon as possible rather than allowing a license extension, or going from the precedent about to be set at Indian Point, operating without a license. Breedal research shows that citizens in four counties within 50 miles of Sequoia have higher cancer death rates than Tennessee state averages in most years. A hearing on the intervention could be ordered by the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board, which just did the right thing for San Onofre. So you may have a shot there, guys. Finally, this reminder that the NRC gets 90% of its funding from the nuclear industry. And that's our NRC Duck Report for the week. You see why ducking is a good idea? Over to Japan, where TEPCO plans to temporarily take off a cover placed around the damaged number 1 reactor building to prepare for the removal of fuel in the spent fuel pool. TEPCO installed the cover in October of 2011 to prevent the further release of radioactive substances into the air, they said. But according to tweets by Fukushima worker Happy11311, as summarized by XSKF, the fabric cover over the Reactor 1 building is only cosmetic and nothing to do with preventing the radioactive materials from escaping. There was talk, presumably from the contractors, to build a more permanent structure, more like the one they're building for Reactor 4, but that was shot down by TEPCO over the cost concerns. They wanted the badly damaged Reactor 1 building out of sight of the live camera. Now that sounds like the TEPCO we have come to know and despise. A TEPCO official said that dismantling the cover, work which will start in the fall, is expected to lead to a quote slight rise, end quote, in the radiation level, but the impact will be, quote, little. Of course, don't you just love their languaging? The nuke industry loves to overuse diminishing adjectives just so you don't pay attention. Where are the real journalists to call them on this spin speak? Because real journalists write in nouns and verbs, not adjectives. Ignore the adjectives. According to a hospital official in Fukushima, the stroke rate is spiking in people ages 35 to 64 and are currently 3.4 times higher than ever before the statement came from the vice president of the minamisoma city general hospital a neurologist on may 8 2013 this comes to us courtesy Iori mochizuki and fukushima diary this neurologist is collecting data about the crisis rate of cerebral apoplexy in other words strokes and says that what he is finding is extremely scary data on may 13 Local fishery officials in Iwaki, Fukushima Prefecture, withheld their consent to Tokyo Electric Power Company's plan to release into the sea groundwater that is now flowing into its stricken nuclear power plant. TEPCO is stuck with a steadily rising volume of highly contaminated water used to cool melted fuel at its crippled reactors. In addition, 400 tons of groundwater are flowing daily into the reactor and turbine buildings. The Fukushima Prefectural Federation of Fisheries Cooperative Association head, Tetsu Nozaki, said the group will hold off on making a decision rather than allowing them to pump the groundwater into the ocean. He said, as for giving our consent, this is something that must go back to the drawing board. TEPCO and the central government need to provide us with a full explanation. The utility's plan is to dig 12 wells on its premises to pump groundwater. The idea is that it will be stored in tanks temporarily and released into the sea after TEPCO confirms its safety. <laughs> You're going to believe anything TEPCO says about safety? Good one, guys. In a very upsetting story for animal lovers, horses in Itate, Fukushima are sickening and dying at an alarming rate. This, according to owner Hosokawa. Out of 34 horses, Four of them, at the time of this story, were unable to stand. One of the four, a white miniature horse, had skin that was badly damaged, jaundiced eyes, its knees were wobbly, and there were symptoms of a damaged liver. Since the filing of this story, that horse has died. Fifteen foals have been born since the beginning of this year, but 14 of them died within a month, sometimes within a week. According to Hosakama, I have never seen anything like this, It's not normal. I think radiation is responsible for this. Here's the numbnuts of the week. Nuclear numbnuts. Did you know that intentionally dumping Fukushima nuclear material into the ocean from the land is not considered dumping, and it's allowed under international law? The Fukushima accident has revealed some key shortcomings in international law, said Kentaro Nishimoto, who teaches Law of the Sea at Tohoku University. Regarding the intentional release of radioactive water into the sea, Nishimoto said, the relevant international laws proved to be non-binding. In particular, he noted, the London Convention on Marine Pollution, although it expressly prohibits ocean dumping of radioactive material, limits these restrictions to vessels at sea. Release of materials from land is not considered dumping. Nishimoto acknowledged, When I tell this to people outside the field of international law, the reaction I get is this is absurd. It's numbnuts. Gaming the future of the planet based on a loophole in wording. There is a video that we're going to link to on the site that deserves your attention. It has three girls from Soma High School in Fukushima presenting a short three-act play that they wrote and perform regarding the suffering caused by the Tohoku earthquake, tsunami, and subsequent nuclear disaster at Fukushima Daiichi. It is in Japanese, and there are subtitles. It was particularly moving when the girls got to their rage and their despair, with lines like, Even if I shout like this, my voice will never reach anyone. We're the ones who have to live here now. You never pay any attention to what the children have to say. This is reality. Somebody, please, help us. That will be linked at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog under Nuclear Hot Seat number 100. In Canada, in New Brunswick, The president of NB Power says that all 780 fuel caps at the Point Lepreau nuclear reactor will have to be replaced at the expense of Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. That's because they're under warranty, so the cost won't be borne by the utility or its customers in New Brunswick. Gaetan Thomas, who is the president of the company, says the caps are too tight as a result of adjustments made during a major refurbishing of the reactor that was completed last November. Sounds like San Onofre in the north. The original $1.4 billion project to refit the plant cost an extra $1 billion and took three years longer than expected. For nuclear, that's ahead of schedule and under budget. The Ontario government is thinking about delaying construction of new nuclear units, says Energy Minister Bob Chiarelli. No official cost estimate has been made for the new nuclear units, but some outsiders say it could be as much as $10 billion. The province is weighing the expensive project of refurbishing the four existing units at Darlington starting in 2016. Close to $1 billion has already been committed, but a final decision on whether to proceed won't be made until 2015. The perfect comment on this comes from the movie Time Bandits. And one final note, Southern California Edison is still looking for a nuclear communications project manager. This is the person who gets to represent them and their meaning to the press, to the public, to local governments. The job has been posted since April twenty-fourth, 2013, and they still haven't found anybody to fill it, even in this job market. This employment opportunity has flop sweat written all over it. Today's interview comes from an unexpected source. Rudolf Herzog is the author of Dead Funny, Humor in Hitler's Germany, and his documentary on humor in the Third Reich. That is such a bizarre phrase for me to be uttering. It's called Laughing with Hitler, scored top audience ratings on German Channel One, and was also broadcast on the BBC. Rudolf is the son of the celebrated filmmaker Werner Herzog, and he has just published the book that we're talking about today, A Short History of Nuclear Folly, Mad Scientists, Dithering Nazis, Lost Nukes, and Catastrophic Cover-Ups.
2: Rudolf Herzog, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat.
3: Hi there.
2: Seeing that your previous book is Dead Funny, Humor in Hitler's Germany which is not a topic that would appeal to most people, or at least would occur to most people. How did you become interested in writing on nuclear issues?
3: Well, I still remember some of uh, the tail end of the Cold War. Uh, I was born in 1973, so um, I remember some sort of close shaves in the early 80s when that uh, Korean jetliner, for instance, was shot down by the Soviets. Um, It really looked like the Big Bang was coming and uh, that Germany would be the battleground of that nuclear war.
2: Why Um, was Germany presumed to be the battlefield for the nuclear war?
3: Well, because uh, many people thought that uh, at some point the Red Army could try to invade Western Europe and that would be the beginning of uh, a possible war. And if that had happened, um, it would have been very difficult to... Uh, ground troops, NATO troops, to stem that tide. So a nuclear kind of uh, hit at the Soviet Union would have been the sort of obvious way to plug that, and that would have led to disaster. And, um, you know, as a kid, I remember someone in school had a rich dad, and they they were building a nuclear shelter in their garden, and so it was very depressive. And and I also remember Chernobyl, because some of that fallout uh, rained down in Bavaria, and I grew up in Bavaria, and in school they came around with a Geiger counter and, and such things. So it's a bit informed by these kind of childhood memories, which seem far away now, but they were very, very real then.
2: What gave you the idea for the book and coming at it at this particular angle? Uh,
3: when I started researching, uh, which was a while ago, I just saw that there was no limit to insanity and irresponsibility. And the more I looked, the the more weird examples I found. I mean, from, you know, people shooting up satellites with reactors on board and they come plummeting down again, to uh, children being, uh, a child being injected with plutonium to see what would happen to uh, 40 uh, nuclear bombs just being lost during the Cold War. I mean, some of them, you know, went down with subs, other went down with planes or fell into a swamp and they dug for it and they couldn't find it. So there was sort of no end to it, and these stories are not all that well-known, and I started collecting, and, and this, it, it just became stranger and stranger.
2: Did you start out with the idea for the book, or you were collecting the stories, and then the book suggested itself to you?
3: Yes, I started collecting the stories. I mean, a part of the, I'm, I'm a documentary filmmaker mainly, and um, some of the chapters actually came out of film ideas, So I I collected quite a few things, and then all of a sudden I, I looked at it and said, wow, I mean, actually this is a book. So that's how it really happened.
2: You state in the preface that your sources include recently released secret documents from the Cold War, as well as personal reminiscences, official evaluations, and press reports from the period. In terms of the secret documents from the Cold War, How did you access them? I'm particularly interested in the extensive information you have that I have not encountered before about what was happening in the nuclear world from the Russian perspective.
3: Some of that one can actually access through Russian sources. In terms of other documents, I mean, the United States is an easy one because you've got the Freedom of Information Act, and eventually things will get released. Sometimes it's not the question, really, of it being released or not, but of actually finding it. Uh, And in the case of, uh, okay, this is not a Russian example, but in the case of the Greenland bomb, I mean, I don't know if you know about this case, but an American bomber went down in 68 uh, off the coast of Greenland with four hydrogen bombs on board and actually found the person who was the first person to access the, Crash site, and he also had access to all the declassified documents that refer to this, because there's still, to this day, controversy about the fact if there's if one of the hydrogen bombs, in fact, melted through the ice, and is still at the bottom of the sea. We know that an American sub went out there to went out there to search and didn't find anything and i saw all those documents because i I could access them through this this man who had who had collected them unfortunately a lot of the stuff is actually blackened out so it's like even declassified documents sometimes have blackened out things in terms of russia as well i found accounts of, of people who had been involved or victims of nuclear testing these are quite obscure books and records, but they're out there, you know, if you if you take the time to look for them. It's less a question of being classified or not, rather a question of finding the source.
2: You state also in the preface that people approach this new technology, the nuclear technology, with, as you stated, a nearly fatal mixture of frivolity, naivete, and unscrupulousness, which is, a great pricey on what was going on. In terms of frivolity or just stupidity, what is the most ridiculous story that you uh, uncovered?
3: I would say it's Teller's it's, uh, idea. Teller was the father of the H-bomb to use nuclear bombs for peaceful purposes. So he His big idea was to blast the second Panama Canal with uh, 300 H-bombs. So that was one idea. But he also, that obviously never happened, but they actually did do a couple of explosions. Like, for instance, they did some testing, I think, in Dakota to see if it's like fracking, uh, to release shale gas. And they did that, and the gas that came out was so radioactive they couldn't use it. But they also wanted to blast a huge harbor in, in Alaska, using 4-H bombs, and uh, this this came close to realization in the the, the early 60s, and they said, well, that area is uninhabited. Well, it wasn't. There were some Inupiat uh, Native Americans there, and they actually uh, uh, stirred up a huge fuss, a media fuss. They realized that this would be really dangerous to them. And that environment, and they managed to stop the whole thing, which is uh, an amazing accomplishment considering that there was no environmental movement to speak of at that time. So I think that would be that would be a, 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 a pretty bad one. And there there are similar projects in Soviet Russia where they where they blasted lakes, for instance, using using H bombs. And then there's footage, you know, you can even find that online of. of you know, someone swimming in it, and so on. I mean, all these things aren't really recommendable. And, um, well, that for me is the height of madness because people knew about the hazards of radiation, and but they nevertheless thought that it could be used for peaceful purposes.
2: What did you find most horrifying or infuriating about the information that you were uncovering?
3: I would say the, uh, the extent of negligence sometimes connected to this material. Um, the Russian census did, did, I think, almost 500, a bit south of 500 nuclear tests in Kazakhstan, again sort of declaring that area as uninhabited. Well, it wasn't, and the people kind of suffer the consequences to this day, the people who live there. And similarly, in, you know, I'm, I'm now picking on Soviet Russia, but a lot of nations did that. Uh, the, the Brits tested in Australia, and uh, there were Aboriginals there um, who were nomadic tribes in that area. Uh, and they only had a single person to basically clear the area before the tests. But we're talking of a massive area, I don't know, maybe the size of the state of New Jersey, and a single man was dispatched to kind of look if there was anyone migrating through that area. Some people got caught in these radioactive clouds and died of, of that radioactivity. So these, these things did happen, and, and of course, the sort of negligence, uh, that really is infuriating
2: we get angered on a regular basis here um, over-the-top because there are so many things with the nrc and the like But this may seem like it's a little side issue but i know it will be of interest to the listeners since fukushima germany has pulled away from nuclear and is on track to be nuclear free by approximately twenty twenty what's your take on how that shift is being perceived by the people
3: in germany the, well there's a big consensus that this is a good thing and you see this is also counterbalanced by a um, uh, great expansion of renewables. So we currently uh, have uh, 23 of our energy production is through renewables at this point in Germany, which is a highly industrialized nation, and um, it's risen sharply, and that figure is expected to double in the next 10 years. So this is, this, is, this, is a, a, this is a great development, in my opinion. also importing less oil year by year. So uh, it's a costly investment. It involves putting up smart grids, uh, offshore wind, par- wind farms and such things. But it's proving to be highly effective. So uh, once you've got that off the ground, I'm just hoping that uh, that will set an example for other nations um, and that, that it is, in fact, possible to do such a thing, even if, you, if you're not down south where there's lots of sun and, you know, so it does actually work.
2: It also helps that you have top-down leadership on this, which, unfortunately, we haven't had here. Here in the States, it's usually perceived that the media, if not in blackout mode about nuclear issues, certainly turns a blind eye to most things nuclear unless they absolutely can't avoid them. In terms of your book tour, how has it been received by the media?
3: I would say so far very well. I mean, it, it has been covered also by television this time. I mean, BBC America interviewed me. Um, actually, C-SPAN did a complete; they shot the whole, uh, a whole reading, almost an hour. So so far so good. I, I'm looking forward to the to the reviews, which I think will start popping up now, and we'll see what people think. But so so far so good, I'd say. I've only been uh, in this country for a couple of days. And I think it's probably a bit early to to give you a definitive on that. But I would say so far the reception has been good.
2: And what was the reception of the book when it was published originally in Germany?
3: It was very good. It was reviewed extremely favorably. But as I said before, there's um, more of a consensus in Germany that uh, nuclear just really isn't a good idea. And, you know, there was a lot of discussions over the last decades about it. And uh, that we're shutting off. Those reactors, is actually, when you say it's a top-down decision, it's actually something a a, a big, big majority in Germany wants. And they tried to backtrack on it, but that was reversed because there was a lot of outrage about that. And uh, frankly, there's just a big majority behind getting out of nuclear.
2: So with you having a background as a documentary filmmaker, you've done all this research, you've written the book. What is the possibility that you will now take the research and turn it into a documentary film?
3: <laughs> that, that's probably pretty high, actually. I mean, uh, now that I've looked, uh, I've also found fantastic footage as I went through the archives, and a lot of that stuff is now declassified. So it will make a great film, and frankly, I'm sort of more or less out there pitching it. I mean, it had, there's sort of strange vignettes. I, I don't know if you know about this, but there's this... Uh, Big, big sort of epic, uh, The Conqueror, which is, uh, which is a film with John Wayne where he plays Genghis Khan. is sort of on the list of the uh, 10 worst films ever made, I mean, with a Genghis Khan beard and so on. Why am I telling you this? Because they shot in Utah in a canyon where a year before the fallout of a gigantic nuclear test had just gone down, rained down, and they shot there. For, for months with uh, Indian extras, Amer- Native American extras, and huge wind machines swirling up all the radioactive dust, and they took 60 tons of the radioactive sand to the uh, studio to then uh, do the close-ups, and that all that wasn't a good idea because in 1980, someone counted, and of 210 crew and cast, 91 had developed cancer, and 43 had died of cancer, including John Wayne, Susan Hayward, the female lead and dick powell was the director so all of that is already you know uh, i believe quite filmic and just just that alone would would you know would would be 10 minutes in a documentary and plus all the footage i found so it really lends itself to that and i do hope that will be the next step
2: we can hope that as well. One of the interviews coming up in the next few weeks is going to be with the founders of the Uranium Film Festival in Brazil. Are you aware of that film festival?
3: Yes, I, I actually I saw the catalog quite recently because they brought some of those films to, uh, to Berlin. And there were quite a few documentaries about the Goiânia disaster, Uh, which had to do with nuclear medicine and sort of um, negligence. This is a Brazilian case, and I cover that in the book, so I found that quite resonant, and um, yes, so I know about it.
2: They're actually going to be coming to the United States this fall and are working to make the festival itself more international in terms of its reach. So it would be great when you get this film together, you would be able to gear it towards that festival.
3: Well, that would be fantastic, but it's early days. Uh, I'm talking to broadcasters now, and we'll see what happens, really, and if it resonates with them. Writing a book, of course, it's just uh, you know me and a publisher. A film is a different ball game to finance a film. I'll put it together. I'll do my best, and I've <laughs> I've cheated the system many times as a filmmaker and managed to make all these films, so I think it'll be possible.
2: We can only wish you the best with that. For a final thought, if this book that you have written could have the impact that you would want, what would that impact be?
3: Well, people need to realize that the nuclear age isn't over. Just because the crosshairs of a a big kind of uh, war between the two superpowers or then superpowers of the Cold War is no longer there, it doesn't mean it's gone. I mean, uh, it, it means that the crosshairs have just moved on to other places and uh, when we hear the rhetoric coming out of north korea you know i'm not worried about some sort of imminent nuclear war but what i am worried about is a new age of proliferation that the neighboring countries of places like north korea or iran or other places uh, will want to hedge their bets and that they will also want nuclear weapons and you know i kind of worry about country many countries now you know maybe some more responsible ones uh, but also some where i'm, I'm worried about their stability uh, now, also wanting nuclear weapons, I think looking at the cases I researched, as I said before, there's no limit to kind of responsibility uh, and 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 the madness handling this technology um I do hope that with future technologies we'll be wiser and I'm uh, maybe a bit naive to think we can learn from history, but that's that's basically the reason why I kind of. Uh, looked at these things and and possibly when the next technology comes along which may be promising we'll act a little bit more responsibly instead of just trying everything that's that's technically possible
2: Well from your mouth to somebody's ears Rudolf Herzog is the author of A Short History of Nuclear Folly, Mad Scientists, Dithering Nazis Lost Nukes and Catastrophic Cover-Ups Rudolf thank you so much for being part of Nuclear Hot Seat Thanks for having
0: me That was Rudolf Herzog, author of A Short History of Nuclear Folly, Mad Scientists, Dithering Nazis, Lost Nukes, and Catastrophic Cover-Ups. Here's today's final thought. As of this episode, Nuclear Hot Seat is 100 podcasts old. Who'd have thunk it? Not me when I got the impulse while on my annual unplugged retreat in the middle of nowhere to do my first podcast this Tuesday. Surely not me when I thought to myself, What are you doing? As I wanted to rip out my hair and hit my head against the wall because anything would hurt less than what it took to put together a nuclear program every week. And this was definitely not me, as I confronted the truth of what the nuclear world has done to this planet and life on it and wanted to give up, not have to look the devil in the eye this closely every week. And yet here I am. And here we are, front row center, to witness the downfall of nuclear, hopefully before it takes the world with it. Two years ago, none of us could have predicted where we are today. Not just the vague possibility, but the growing certainty that San Onofre can and will be shut down permanently. Members of Congress waking up at the nuclear dangers in their own backyards and lashing out at nuclear complacency. Activists taking action and making headlines around the globe. Our movement continues to grow from the grassroots up, as social media links us with others working for alternative energy and against nukes literally around the world. And how could I ever have envisioned the wonderful contact I've had with passionate activists in Japan, India, Australia, Germany, Sweden, Costa Rica, and don't get me started on Canada. I may have to apply for honorary citizenship based on the links I forged there. Thank you, Marius Paul and Zach Ruder, and all the rest. I honor each and every one of you for your time, efforts, thought, action, strategies, humor, camaraderie, and support, even if all you're doing now is listening to this podcast. When I've faltered, inevitably and serendipitously, I've received one of your encouraging, acknowledging email, a Facebook post, a program suggestion, or a donation. As I'm about to head off for this year's installment of my Unplugged Retreat, Know that I do not know what further impulses will whisper in the wind and find their way into my heart. Hopefully the right final chapter for my nuclear memoir, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, will be one of them. But know that I take all of you with me. Try to keep the world from blowing itself up while I'm away, or leaking radioactive death into yet another spot of land or body of water. Just take care of things until I get back in time for next week's show. And yes, there will be a show next week. And if I get any bright ideas while I'm up where I'm going to be, you will be the first to know. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 14, 2013. Material for this week's show came from... (gasps) ENE News.com, Fukushima Diary and Yori Mochizuki, Fairwinds Energy Education and Arnie Gunderson, Informable, Kevin Campson, Beyond Nuclear, Friends of the Earth, Citizen Oversight, San Clemente, Green, Reuters, the Facebook group, Chernobyl, Children, Fukushima, Children, Fukushima, Worker, Happy 11 <gasps> Kyoto News, Asahi Shinbun, the Canada Press, The Star.com, LinkedIn, Scientific American, NPR, Rolling Stone, Huffington Post, NuclearNews.net, CBS New York, Wood TV 8, ABC 57, the NRC, TEPCO, and the fabulous Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, which you are all invited to join, either under my name or under Nuclear Hot Seat. Our archive is available on iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. The blog page is better. Go there. That's where I've got links, pictures, videos, and a mini description of each week's content. Lots of information to enrich your understanding of the issues. Click on archives or scroll down the blog page. And if there is someone who can help me turn this into a searchable database, please let me know. My computer skills are limited, and this step is beyond me and certainly beyond my budget. So did you like the podcast? Learn something? Did it make you think? Maybe surprise you with a laugh? Help me keep it going. Nuclear Hot Seat is a completely volunteer project. Yes, I'm nuts. And there are ongoing expenses. So if you appreciate the show, Go to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down, hit the Donate button, follow the prompts. Do your part to help me keep this podcast alive. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us and support us as the resource we are. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2013, Lee B. Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but you, yes, you, have my permission to reuse this material as long as proper attribution, website link, and email are included. This is Lee B. Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake up call. Now, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep. We're going out on... Okay,
2: here we go, guys. Um,
1: okay.
2: My name is Libby Halevi, and we are talking on Tuesday, June fourteenth, 2011. And uh, the purpose of this call is to discuss the nuclear issues that are going on in the world. Um, I have a particular interest in this because I uh, was at Three Mile Island when it happened. I was one mile away. That was back in 1979, and ever since I have been acutely aware of what's going on with, with the nuclear industry. Maybe not completely conversant, there are times I avoided the information completely, but certainly since Fukushima, on March 11th of this year, uh I have been absorbed in what's going on, the information that's out there, the various ramifications it's having, the lack of information that is getting to most people. And what it is that we need to do in order to maintain our health, maintain our sanity, and do something to turn around the nuclear situation so that we're no longer being um, subjected to the dangers of having a dirty bomb in our backyard. Um There are a lot of directions I could go with this, but I think where I would like to focus is to let you know that this is about sparking an activist response. Um, A lot of times online we get all excited and we sign petitions and we forward videos and we say, oh, look at this. Oh, isn't this this upsetting? Oh, isn't this terrible? And then it all dies down and goes away, and nothing has translated into action in the analog world, in the physical world. It's just been a brouhaha. Online. So what I would like to do is address this from a perspective of what can we do to take action, small steps leading to larger steps, that can put an activist response into the world so we can start turning this thing around. So having said that, uh, there are some people on this call live. Is there anything you would like to do to identify yourself or bring forth any particular information?
1: Well, uh, this is Wanda,
2: and I, for one, was quite interested in the process happening um, in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh Because that sounds, and and with the flooding going on even above it in uh, South Dakota, so it is right in our backyard. Well, this is, I think, Our opportunity, I mean, it's horrible to think of it this way, but at least the nuclear issue is back in front of Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. Because of the corporate media manipulation and the power of the nuclear industry and the fear of the governments involved, we haven't been getting straight information here in the United States about what's been going on in Japan. There are alternative sources that I can turn people onto that are available online that are highly reputable and not sensationalistic at all, but really information-based. The key here is that it's now happening in the middle of our heartland with the potential to wipe out an entire swath of the middle of the country. And uh, that's got people's attention right now. And if they weren't aware of the danger before, they certainly are now.